Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Tommy Solo's Famous Friends. This is where I get to chat with people who I've connected with in the world of arts and entertainment over the years. And today we're doing part two of our conversation with Greg Godovitz, singer, songwriter, musician, author, and producer. Welcome back for part two, Greg. That's right. I just got a question for you, uh, Tommy. Did you get the invoice that Mrs. Claypool sent you? I've got this constant dinging on my phone. And I was wondering who the hell would have the gall to interrupt me in the middle of such a prestigious and important interview. And now I see I've got not just one invoice, there's two. What's up with that? If part two is as good as the first part, I I hope she charged you twice as much. So let's just get on with it. (laughs) So where we left off, you were just starting to talk about getting into Flood. And uh, I learned something. I thought you were one of the founding members, but... Uh, you weren't. So the band happened, and then somehow you managed to get in there. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said earlier, I was boyhood friends with the Billings. I mean, you know, we we had a lot of adventures when we were children, you know. I remember one day in particular, we, we talked in the part one about my mom working at the Friars. Well, she finally convinced Mr. Josie, uh, he was the owner and the manager of the Friars Tavern, and it was Mr. Josie. He was an imposing guy. She said, you know, Mike Gregory's got a, a really good little beat group and uh, could he come down and can they do a set one afternoon on Saturday so he said yeah okay so we went down and we sat in with Levon and the Hawks uh, which was you know interesting enough no nerves at all I mean you're 13 years old you're fearless right and we did a set and Dave Johnson and Bob McAdory who were the two big disc jockeys on Chum AM 1050 Chum back in the day they were in the audience and they freaked. I mean, they, like, I mean, we were children, but when we sang together, it didn't sound like kids. If we did Beatles songs, it sounded like them. I mean, it was, you know, we could twist our voices around, something I still do to this day. And we do three-part harmonies. It sounded great. They took us up to Club 888 that night. That's the venue that became the rock pile of the Young and Davenport, uh, where Led Zeppelin and everybody played. And we sat in with an R&B band that was there that night. And normally we should have got killed because these were hardcore, greasy R&B fans. But I guess we were so bloody cute <laughs> and, you know, singing these Beatles songs and stuff that we went over great. But you know, we actually had that kind of attention back then because the Pillings were brothers. I was like their third brother. You know, so the harmonies were really good because we learned how to sing together, you know, when we were children. Well, that's important. I've had several drummers and bass players that wanted to be part of my band, and they don't sing. And if you're going to be in my band, you're going to sing, you know? Yeah. That's what I loved about the early Gatto days, that Marty Moran, who I also went to high school with, he was Gatto's original drummer. He could sing like a bird. 
And because we both hadn't been lead singers, I've got the early recordings, we sang in unison just to have, you know, one voice with some strength to it. So we sang everything in unison. And then when it came to the choruses, either him or I would split off into the harmony. And now that he's back playing with me, again, we're doing the same sort of thing. It's pretty cool, you know. But now, of course, we're both lead singers, so we know we know how to, you know, get the point across. Well, that's it's interesting because trick. I've always recorded, in studio, I've always double-tracked my lead vocals. So you guys were double-tracking live. Live, yeah. I don't know how novel that was for the time. I mean, John and Paul would do it for sure, and then they'd split into those. Lennon was always really good at those lower third harmonies, that, those really weird David Crosby harmonies that he did. But yeah, that's, you know, that's how we learned how to sing. So it was inevitable that I would, after I saw the band, I just went, oh, I, no, I got to be at this. I mean, I'd had my living in Yorkville stint with all the, Yorkville started to get a little bit weird because heroin was coming into the play. Instead of just, you know, pot and LSD, now all of a sudden hard drums were coming in and it was time to get out of there. So I went back to Scarborough, cleaned up my act and then got in flood and started that whole journey, which, you know, saw us go to, I mean, we went to San Francisco to record at um, Pacific Sound with the great Fred Catero, who did all the early San Francisco bands, and Barbara Streisand and people like that. We had Adam Mitchell from the Poppers was our producer, not a fan. And then we went to England and did the the work, uh, you know, at the Manor, and then recorded another album with, once again, Lita Carlo, I think Cousin Mary and those hits that came out of that era. It was an incredible education, you know. I used to call it Flood's Follies because we had no business going to England for two weeks recording. I ran into Richard Branson when I was recording the first Goddard album and was walking from the studio across this cobblestone courtyard in Plashieville in Montreal in my pajamas and my terry cloth house robe, which is all I wore. At the manor. <laughs> I found it so much easier to wear your pajamas because then when you finally fall down, you're ready for bed. So I started this precedent of recording and living in my pajamas. So I walk into the, the bar part. I was going to get a carafe of wine, some escargot, which I was now hooked on. And I hear this voice going, I know you. I know you. I know you. And I looked at him and went, Richard, yeah, Greg from Flood. He goes, that's right. You owe me 30,000 pounds. <laughs> And I said, and this, I'm ruining this to the day. I said, hey, man, I was just the bass player in the band. I don't know you nothing. And then I got my stuff and went back. What I should have done was laughed heartily. And I said, do you want to hear what my new band's up to? That's what I should have done. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. It strikes me that every time I got to a, a fork in the road and I could go right and there would be like fairies and elves and gold and wine gum trees and all the stuff you'd like to have. I always went left. It went right off a cliff. <laughs> That's funny. You know, I uh, I talked to, I don't know if you know, Bill Durst was the original guitar player from Thundermug. Oh, I love him. Yeah, Bill and I go back a, a long way. In fact, Ed Pranskis, who was the drummer from Thundermug, has been my drummer off and on since 2014. But uh, Bill and I were talking at one point, and he had lost his mother recently. I had lost my only son. And he said, you know, you and I were on this bus he says before we were actually born and we were asked you can get on the one bus and it's going to take you to nothing but good times and happiness all through your life or you can get on this other bus that you're going to experience all the extreme highs and lows 
that life can offer. And he said, you and I put up our hands and said, we want on that bus. The bus that took you through life experiencing nothing but extreme highs and extreme lows throughout your entire life. Yeah. yeah. I said, I'm going to pick bus number two, but I missed it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and I mean, I've had extreme highs and I've had extreme yeah. lows. You like know, every musician, of I course. Th- you know. Yeah. You know, and I think that's maybe part of our lot. Well, it's, I've always, I try to be a good mentor to young kids coming up. And the first bit of mentoring advice I give them is, if you want to have a career anywhere near as long as mine, grow another layer of skin and make sure it's dinosaur skin because you got your work cut out for you, pal. You want to be a musician for the rest of your life. Well, it's interesting, you know, I've talked to uh, a good number of artists over the years, and what I found is a common thread for a lot of the successful people is that while they were trying to make it in the music business, they had day jobs. And that, for a lot of these people, I think, freed them up, like the band Anvil. They did 13 albums when both Lips and, and Robbo had day jobs. So that gave them the artistic freedom that they needed to really do what they wanted to do, and to hone their craft to their liking. And it was because of the fact that they had day jobs that they didn't have to worry about the money so much when they were trying to be creative with their art, you know? Yeah, I've seen the movie three times. I'm going to go see it again when it starts on the 29th in the theaters again. I love those guys. I mean, they did a lot of work with us. I never had a job. I'm one of those other guys that, you know, is now in trouble because most of my friends that had jobs, they ended up buying houses, and now they're selling them in their 70s, and they're, they got a million and a half dollars, I'm still renting, you know. But do I have many regrets? No. Sort of wish that I hadn't lost, you know, three houses and divorces. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm much like uh, Sam Kinison, I'm that easy to live with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, maybe we'll ask Mrs. Claypool about that. Yeah. Oh, she'll be the first one to tell you what a rotten, <laughs> rotten goof I am, you know. <laughs> So, I'm moody, you know? I mean, I'm mercurial, you know? I, mean, I go from, like, really, really hot to really cold instantly, you know? Well, you're an but artist. But that's just part of the creative thing, you know? I mean, yeah, you're an artist. So little things can set you off that really shouldn't. I've gotten better. You know, that old adage about don't sweat the little stuff, and it's all little stuff, you know? Yeah, that's true. But there's a lot of little stuff. Now, Flood was fairly successful in terms of exposure and radio play and the hits and so on. And then at some point in time, ultimately, that wasn't working out for you and you decided to put a new band together. So ultimately, how did Gatto happen? Well, I think once again, it goes back to my mom. You know, uh, Flood was a real family-oriented band. So when we had parties and stuff, the parents were invited, you know, and I always loved that aspect because they were real English, you know, from Birmingham and real English. And we were at a party and I saw my mother was talking to Brian at length. And then she said to me the next day, she said, I had an interesting chat with Brian yesterday. And she said, uh, I told him, she said, you know, Brian, Mike Gregory is writing some really good songs. And, you know, are you ever going to consider giving him a shot? And Brian said, with all due respect, Mr. Donovan, Flood is my group, and that's not going to happen. And that's when I quit. Writing was just on the wall. I just quit. No, I've given you know five or six years of my life to this. And I mean, I wrote Chantel back then. I wrote Cock On back then. There was a whole bunch of songs that 
ended up on goggle albums that were really good, you know. And uh, they just wouldn't, we learned cock on it. It sounded like the Who doing it with Ed Billings singing it. And, you know, Chantel, we had the Mellotron and the strings and stuff, but they wouldn't do them. You know, there's no way they were going to record them. So I thought, okay, well, now it's, I've got enough songs, or I'm getting enough songs that I can put my own band together. And, of course, Brian, uh, he was quickly succumbing to uh, leukemia, and that, that wasn't easy to watch. Mm. So they continued. They brought in another guitar player because Brian could no longer play live. And I watched from outside. You know, Brian was still active writing and stuff, but it wasn't long. I think he, he died just after Who Cares came out. The first album came out, and we became great friends again. And I have that's a cross I have to bear, because I always wonder what would have happened had he lived, you know what I mean? Would we have got back together? I mean, it's the age-old question. But I started looking around. Now, Marty Moore, of course, like I mentioned, went to school with me, and I knew what a great drummer he was, a great singer. So he was a no-brainer. And then I looked for a guitar player, and I remember being at the famous Knob Hill Hotel one night when Gino was there with Brutus. And I told Walter's Wall, I said, I need to find a guitar player for my band. And he said, what about him? I looked at Gino, and he's got like four chicks sitting around him, like, you know, <laughs> playing with his hair and stuff. And I said, well, he's your guitar player. He says, he's not happy. And I looked at him again, surrounded by the chicks. I said, yeah, he'll be fine. And, and that's how that started. You know, and then we went in, and we rehearsed way out in the West End. I remember it took me four buses to get to this ridiculous place out in Mississauga. I don't know why we were... <laughs> I know why, because Gino couldn't drive either. And it was closer, and he only had to take one bus, or else he would have gotten lost. So I had to take four buses. He took one. And we rehearsed, and then we played our first gigs, and uh, we had 15 songs. 15 songs and four, four. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Three minute sets. <laughs> By the time we started the second set, we were already repeating songs from the first set. Wow. So we, we had to stretch things out. We really were like Creed because we could take a song for 10 minutes and just improvise on it. I mean, I'd been through the blues thing when everybody was doing that. We all did. All of us came from that, uh, through that Chicago blues cream kind of thing. So it was easy for us to stretch 15 songs into a full evening. The funniest story was our first gig out of town was at Duffy's Tavern in uh, Hamilton. Oh, and boy. This, this guy comes up to me, and he looks exactly like the way I'm going to make him sound. I'm lucky I'm the manager. You're going to do exactly as you are told. You got four 40-minute sets. You get a 15-minute break. No drum solos. You understand me? 
Yes, Lucky, we understand you. So we go on stage for our first song. And I looked at Marty, I said, Marty, you know what to do, right? Ten-minute drum solo. <laughs> and then after he finished, I said, well, now that we know who's really in charge here, here you go. <laughs> at Duffy's of all places, wow. Yeah, I mean, we were just that bad. We did not care. I mean, I couldn't have gotten beaten up like crazy. The first gig we did was at the Hollywood Tavern. And I remember Ed Pilling came to it. Gina was doing the lights with his feet. And I had an echoplex, one of those old echoplexes like Jimmy Page used to use. And I would control, I used to like that John Lennon tape slap sound of mm-hmm. the double track vocal. So I would be using that. And all of a sudden, this guy comes out of the front row and I see this chair arcing through the lights. He's thrown a chair at us. And Gino stops playing. And the guy turns around and Gino throws the chair at the back of this guy. <laughs> and then I see Ed Pilly get up. And Ed was the toughest guy I ever met in my life. I never saw a fight go beyond one punch. And he went over to have a quick word with the guy. <laughs> You're like, hey, buddy, you know, don't throw anything at the band. But it was like that. I mean, you know, we were a brand new band. We were, we were as loud as hell. Nobody knew our material. Because, you know, it was all original. Except for we had some English songs that picked up in England that nobody knew over here. So Flames by a group called Elmer Gantry's Velvet Opera. Great rock and roll song. We did that one. We did The Eagle Flies on Friday. Can't remember the name of the band. Doesn't matter. And then we did a song called Do Ya by a group called The Mood. Now this is pre-ELO. Okay. So we never said this is by a group called The Mood. We just did it, you know? So everybody thought that these great songs were ours, but, but they weren't, you know. And we only had four or five of them because we had to flesh things out. I think we even did Louis Louis back then, but we learned how to write songs really fast. We had to. Right. Now, it's interesting that you were playing original stuff in the bars because back then, that was really tough. You know, like when you went to see a band in a bar, typically they were doing all, all covers. Yeah, boring. Blood was all original. I think the difference is that you had good songs, you know? Well, yeah. That's the other thing. Brian and Ed were great songwriters, so we had great material. That's why we had eight top ten records in that band. Right. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because a lot of the bands from back in the 70s and even into the 80s were really album bands, you know, where they'd have two or three good songs and five or seven that were just filler. So I can't imagine being that band you know, trying to break out in a bar. No, and I'm sure they, you know, I know that Flood set a precedent because I don't think there was any other, actually, you know, I'm wrong. Foot and Cold Water were contemporaries of ours and they were all original because we all sort of came out of the Yorkville thing. So you had Foot and Cold Water developed out of uh, the Lords of London, which became Nucleus with Greg Fitzpatrick. And then I think three of the guys from Foot were in, in the band. Nauman and Paul Horn, the keyboard player, and Danny Taylor that wrote Make Me Do. So we'd sort of grown up in that era where, you know, bands like the Poppers were doing all original songs. So no, we didn't really, I think we set the precedent for doing them in the Knob Hill kind of bars, the rough bars, you know, where you always made sure you had at least one guy in the band that could fight. Yeah, right. (laughs) That would be Ed Pilling, you know, so I always started the fights and then hid behind Ed. (laughs) That's like my little brother, my younger brother. I used to hear him in the neighborhood going, I'm going to get my big brother after you. You know what I mean? (laughs) What the hell? You know, like, (laughs) you mouth off and I have to do the duking. Oh, 
I had two big brothers I could have done the same thing with, but they were both busy beating me up. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I had nobody to turn to. I learned how to run. Oh, boy. That's why you were so athletic on stage. Yeah. Oh, man. I, those legs of mine, man, I could kill some of these. <laughs> yeah. All those, I, I would have been a marathon runner. <laughs> all those years of running away from your big brothers. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. So Gatto had quite the, the lengthy run. Yeah, I mean... Starting in 1977, I think, with... Uh, 75, actually. Okay, 75 so, is when we first started playing. And then you was the first album, Gatto, 1977? Yeah, we recorded at that place in Plashyville, Listen Audio, it was called. And Dixon Van Winkle was the engineer. He'd already worked on Ram with Paul McCartney. And I'd go to his place some nights after, and he'd be playing me outtakes of McCartney jamming and stuff. And I was just in heaven, you know. Right. So that's, we were there for, we used to take the train down. Marty, by this time, had left the band. He was with us for a year. And okay. then his wife said, look, we're having a baby. You've got to smarten up. You've got to get a job. Yeah. He became a bus driver. And I wrote Bus Driver Blues in honor of it, which he had to listen to for the next 30 years. Well, isn't that <laughs> serendipitous? Yeah. So there was three Gatto albums that were either on or associated with Polydor, and then Pretty Bad Boys was on Attic. Now, was that Al Mayer at the time? Yeah. Now, Flood was the first band signed to Attic, so I already knew about these guys. And the first album, so we took the train down to Montreal all the time, and that was great. That was great, because we'd be drunk by the time we got off the train. <laughs> we were in the club car all the way there, having, you know, sandwiches with no crust on them and, and glasses of wine, learning how to be alcoholics. And we'd stumble off the train and then we'd go and record, you know. But I, I remember they put us into a hotel. It was like a rubby hotel. Right? And I already had incredible, like, delusions of grandeur because my first wife, her father was a multimillionaire. So when we traveled, it was five-star hotels and restaurants. And I learned very early in life what a really good bottle of wine was, you know, and what a good hotel was. So being in a rubby hotel while we're recording, you know, and then one night I'm standing in the corridor and this guy's got his door open on the other side from where we are. And I see the building 10 feet away from this guy's window is on fire. <laughs> so I go down to the lobby and say, hey, the building next door is on fire. And I call up Martin Malouish, who was our manager at the time. I said, we have to move hotels, man. <laughs> he says, no, it's not in the... I said, please, humor me. Come down here, and I'll show you why. <laughs> he comes down, and he sees that the building's on fire next <laughs> So they moved us into a good hotel. I said, okay, now the choice of hotels is me, or I'm going home. Okay, so we, then we moved down to Maison and whatever the two big down in the, the really cool area was. Oh, and uh, then we Life ended the up spending the time. Oh, it was great. And, you know, I met Pagliaro down there. And, you know, we became friends. And uh, the guys in uh, Influence, Walter Rossi, and he didn't like me too much, but there's a big story that goes along with that one. And Frank Marino, I introduced him to G I said, Gino, Frank Maraschino. <laughs> <laughs> And he looks at me right? he goes, it's Marino, man. And I said, like I said, Gino, Frank Maraschino. And then I watched him. Right? <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, we really did give a crap, you know. We just, I mean, it was a real rock band. The people could say, you arrogant goof. 
But, you know, when you look at it in retrospect, I mean, it was funny stuff. And it was guys who eventually became our friends, you know, and just catching on to your sense of humor. Everything was open to suggestion. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of water under the bridge over the years, and you've done a lot, been there, done that kind of thing. What are you up to these days, Greg? Well, like I said last week, I'm working on my third book, which is once again called The Idiot's Trilogy, Part 4. You'd be surprised at how many people don't get that joke. And uh, it's very funny, and I'm trying to have it finished for early next year, if there is a next year, <laughs> when right. the world's falling apart. And I've got a new band. Well, first, uh, on the ancient Gato material, we've got Eddie Kramer, who's become a great friend of mine, mixed the first Gato album from the kick drum up. And there is a sample available on YouTube, the Eddie Kramer remix of Under My Hat. I would advise people that are running to get their put on headphones, because, of course, Eddie was known for panning and all strange effects going left and right in your ears. And it sounds like a whole new record. It's just magnificent. I love the original Under My Hat, so I can't wait. Anyway, well, sorry. You know what's funny was we recorded it at the studio in Montreal. Dwayne Ford played the Fender Rhodes piano, and I did the vocal in the little booth while I was playing bass. You could hear me cueing the guys. You could actually hear it on the original record, but they used the scratch vocals. And then Eddie found two other tracks of vocals. They found a double of me doubling because I never dogged it when I did scratch vocals. I sang it like a medic. So the one you hear on the original record was the scratch vocal, just when I was cueing the band. And then I doubled it because it was good enough just to you know not do it again. And then in the choruses, the doubled vocal went into a third harmony, and then I added a fifth harmony on top of it. So it's like a, a Beatles triad in it. And I went, I didn't even remember recording those. He says, well, you did it. They sound great, so they're on the new version. We found a lot of stuff like that that we hadn't used, you know? Cool. So that's coming up. And then I found a ton of stuff. I had all my albums were picked up by the National Library in uh, Ottawa. And they sent me the tracking sheets. And I went, what the hell is this song? I thought we'd released everything that we recorded, but we didn't. I found a, a number of really cool songs that I'd recorded with different people over the years. But with Gatto, we would have Triano come in and play guitar on this song called It's Only Eagle If You Can't Back It Up. And it's magnificent, as you can well imagine. Dominic, he laid down three passes. He says, you got enough of there, you can cut and paste. We didn't know what to use. I mean, it's all tremendous. So that's coming out. A rarities album. There's going to be a box set coming out with everything remastered and booklets and all that stuff. And I found a bunch of live recordings from 19... I'll just walk over. Of course, your people at home can't see me walking across, but I am. Gone with the Gasworks, March 9th, 1976. Wow. And it's on CD. It's a board recording. It's unbelievable. It's with Marty in the band. And you can see what a different band we were then, as opposed to with... Because, you know, God bless him and God rest his soul, Doug Inglis. But, you know, he wasn't a singer, you know? So when Marty left the band, the dynamic of the band changed because I was the only vocalist, basically. I could put the harmonies on the records, but I couldn't do them live. So listening to these early songs, and it's got some of those songs we talked about earlier, that the English hits that we did, and then all the early Gatto stuff, and early Gatto songs that we never recorded on albums. 
So it's all grist for the mill now because I've found all these things. Somebody sent me five DVDs of Gatto concerts in the Kitchener Waterloo area at the Coronet and places like that. That was, was a bar, a, the Coronet. Yeah, there was a ton of the stuff that we had never played live. So there's another project is weeding through this stuff and picking out the tracks that only the hardcore fans would know and put out a DVD of, of rarities. So that's what's happening on that part. Awesome. And then we were inactive during COVID like everybody else. Gato was finished. We'd done our last date a couple of years ago. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm inactive. And then Get Back comes out. I think it, by now everybody knows I'm a massive Beatles fan. And I watch all eight hours of Get Back. We subscribe to Disney. And I only had my laptop at the time, so I watched the whole thing on my laptop. And then I made the phone calls. And I said, that's it. We're getting back to work. So I called up people. I called up Marty. I called up Dr. Gordon McKinnon, keyboard professor of music that we went to high school with. Uh, I wanted Steve Jensen from the Carpet Frogs, who I'd worked with, to come in playing guitar. I wanted uh, Gene Hardy, who's probably the busiest tenor saxophone player in this country, and a real rock star. I mean, the guy's amazing looking. And I was having lunch one day with some girls that we'd met, Rhonda Bruce and her girlfriend, Kathy. And I said, I'm putting a new band together. I'm looking for a bass player. You know? And she goes, what about me? And I went, oh, yeah, that's interesting. And then left it at that. And then Mrs. Claypool gave me hell after. She goes, how could you insult her like that? And I said, well, how do you figure I insulted her? She goes, well, she told you that she was available. And you said, that's interesting. I said, there's nothing negative about that. And called her up and I said, we're rehearsing in my basement next week. This isn't an audition. Would you like to come and play with the band? Yeah, she's the bass player. Cool. So I went on to guitar, guitar and singing. And it's a six-piece band. It sounds like an orchestra. I mean, if you see any of the clips, you know, that are out there on Facebook and that, I look at it and go, holy smokes, this band. I mean, I've even got a clip on there of Eddie Kramer coming to see us play in, in uh, Prince Edward County where he lives. And he was so excited, he got a tambourine and came up and joined the band. He says, you've got an incredible, he says, it's like an orchestra. It's more than an orchestra than a bloody group. Well, that is really just, cool. I would so, concur. I did, I did watch some of that on YouTube. And uh, it's awesome that you're able to get out there and do that. You know, and with the yeah. Scarbarians, I can see some cool things happening. Listen, I don't want to take up all of your day, Greg. This has been great fun. It's been thrilling. So I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to do this with me. And until next time, cheers. It was great being here, Tommy. Thanks very much. And everybody out there, uh, enjoy the new music when it comes out. Well, I know I'm certainly looking forward to anything new that Greg Godovitz brings out. If you're in the Toronto area, you got to check out the Scarbarians. They are an awesome live band. And now, without further ado, here is the Eddie Kramer remix of Under My Hat. Enjoy.
Tommy Solo's Famous Friends is a one-man production, meaning that I've done all the work, including guest acquisition, recording, editing, and so on. And hey, if you like the show, why not subscribe and help support us through Patreon at patreon.com slash tommysolo. The theme song for Tommy Solo's Famous Friends is a clip from my original composition, The Burn.
All Rights Reserved. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening, and until next time, cheers!